This is the Padre Peregrino podcast. Theology from a wandering priest where you can learn scripture from the fathers and traditional catechisms for free. Join Father David Nix here for shows on church reform and world politics, all from the point of view of apostolic Catholicism, the original founded by Christ. This is RCT number 21, Christ Died Freely. RCT stands for the Roman Catechism of Trent. Today we are on pages 53 to 57. This is the Creed, Article 4, Part B. God give you his peace, and nomine pace sefiri et spiritu santi. Amen. O heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasure of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us of all impurity and save our souls, O good one. In nomine pace sefiri et spiritu santi. Amen. And thanks to those of you who support me with prayer and my material needs. The Catechism today begins. Importance of the History of the Passion Furthermore, the pastor should not omit the historical part of this article, which has been so carefully set forth by the holy evangelists, so that the faithful may be acquainted with at least the principal points of this mystery, that is to say, such as seem more necessary to confirm the truth of our faith. For it is on this article as on their foundation, that the Christian faith and religion rest. And if this truth be firmly established, all the rest is secure. Indeed, if one thing more than another presents difficulty to the mind and understanding of man, assuredly it is the mystery of the cross, which beyond all doubt must be considered the most difficult of all. So much so that only with great difficulty can we grasp the fact that our salvation depends on the cross and on him, who for us was nailed thereon. In this, however, as the Apostle teaches, we may well admire the wonderful providence of God, foreseeing that the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. See 1 Corinthians 1.21. It is no wonder, then, that the prophets, before the coming of Christ and the Apostles, after his death and resurrection, labored so strenuously to convince mankind that he was the Redeemer of the world, and to bring them under the power and obedience of the crucified. Me again. So you know, with all of the things that are happening in the church, with the fact that we are probably in the greatest church crisis ever, I too get caught up in a lot of the doctrinal issues that are separating different Catholics today from different Catholics. And I think it's important we discuss those things. But we have to remember the very foundation of our faith. You know, the other night I was explaining to a friend that even after all these years of moving from kind of Catholic and Protestant apologetics to now being involved in church reform, I still believe when I talk to an unbeliever or somebody on an airplane who may be a mild Christian or a Protestant or even a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist, I I still have as my go-to, so to speak, C.S. Lewis's Lord, Liar, or Lunatic. Really what I love to present to people is you have to pick one of those three about Jesus. Either he was a lord, liar, or lunatic. I think Peter Kreeft later added on guru, a couple other things there. But, but really, most people can choose lord, liar, lunatic. Now some of you might say C.S. Lewis is, is a Protestant, and I know that. But keep in mind, 1 Corinthians 14 to 15, St. Paul, he was a Catholic priest, he was a Catholic bishop, in the Douay Rhymes reads this, And if Christ be not risen again, then is our preaching in vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have given testimony against God, 
that he hath raised up Christ, whom he hath not raised up, if the dead not rise again. So what St. Paul is saying right there is, the whole shebang of our faith is false if Jesus is not risen from the dead. But if he is risen from the dead, if Jesus is truly both crucified and risen, then he's true, truly Lord of all. You know that old phrase, either he's not Lord at all or he's Lord of all. That is truly true historically because our Catholic faith is a historical religion. You know, we in the West might take it for granted that we have a historical religion, but not all world religions are historical. For example, Buddhism teaches that to get rid of suffering, you get rid of desire, and to get rid of desire, you get rid of attachments in life. That's really about it as the point of Buddhism. Now, a true Buddhist listening to this podcast, not like a fake, bolder Buddhist, but a true Buddhist listening to this podcast would say, ah, that's your mistake. You look for a point or a goal. We do not. Well, we're agreed on that. But as a Catholic, as a Christian who knows Jesus truly rose and truly truly died and truly rose from the dead, if your goal is more than that of Buddhism, namely getting extinguished as a drop of water falling into ocean, that's nirvana, if truth actually matters, if heaven and hell actually matter, then everything comes down to if Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose, I should say, since I know, as sure as the nose on my face, that Jesus rose from the dead, since Jesus rose, he has accurately conveyed one faith to the apostles, which has to be Catholicism. Why? Because that's the only one that goes back 2,000 years. Now, of course, the Eastern Orthodox would claim that too, but that's a debate for another day. But Protestants are slowly waking up to the fact that they can't make that claim. Why? Because they're reading the Church Fathers. They're reading the earliest Christians who all had seven sacraments. So we see that if Jesus rose from the dead, the whole shebang of the Catholic faith is true. I should say, since Jesus rose from the dead, the whole Catholic faith is true. But the point today is that because Jesus historically died and historically rose, even if we can't prove that, we can strongly disprove the opposition to that with true apologetics. And that's where I encourage you to read about the Lord Liar, the lunatic. Really read the historicity of the 12 apostles. You know, 11 of the 12 were martyred. I think it's a really great point to point out to people. If the apostles were truly after money or power, why were 11 of the 12 apostles martyred? I got a little bit of pushback on Facebook the other day saying, well, no, Judas wasn't martyred. And I said in reply, well, after Pentecost, Judas was never numbered among the 12. Matthias, St. Matthias, took his place, and he is a martyr. So 11 of the 12 apostles were martyrs. In some sense, keep this in mind too, in some sense we do consider St. John the Apostle to be a martyr. In the West, in the 1962 and prior calendar, we have a feast called St. John at the Latin Gate. That's when he, when John the Apostle was actually in Rome, right outside one of the gates, he was put into boiling oil and miraculously survived that. But it is considered such a formidable attempt on his life that we in the West, and maybe even the Eastern churches, put on red vestments. So in some sense, even St. John the Apostle is considered an apostle, is considered a martyr, excuse me. And of course, St. Paul, even though he wasn't one of the 12 apostles, in some sense he is the apostle, the apostle with a capital A in Catholic literature, and he, of course, is a martyr. So in some sense, all of the apostles were martyrs. But anyway, the point is, why would a religion that has made one billion plus converts be founded on people with ulterior motives? Ulterior motives, speaking of ISLAM, you know the founder of that, 
what he was after was S-E-X and M-O-N-E-Y. That's just a fact if you look at his life. He brags about this. But how in the world did we have a billion, possibly up to two billion converts to Catholicism, to Christianity, if the apostles had something to gain except eternal life that Jesus Christ alone can give? The Catechism again, figures and prophecies of the passion and death of the Savior. Since, therefore, nothing is so far above the reach of human reason as the mystery of the cross, the Lord immediately after the fall ceased not, both by figures and prophecies, to signify the death by which his son was to die. To mention a few of these types, first of all, Abel, who fell a victim of the envy of his brother, Genesis 4, Isaac, who was commanded to be offered in sacrifice, Genesis 22, the lamb immolated by the Jews on their departure from Egypt, Exodus 12, and also the brazen serpent lifted up by Moses in the desert, Numbers 21, were all figures of the passion and death of Christ the Lord. As to the prophets, how many there were who foretold Christ's passion and death is too well known to require development here. Not to speak of David, whose psalms embrace all the principal mysteries of the redemption. The oracles of Isaiah, in particular, are so clear and graphic that he might be said to rather to have recorded a past than predicted a future event. Second part of this article, Dead and Buried, Christ Really Died. The pastor should explain that these words present for our belief that Jesus Christ, after he was crucified, really died and was buried. It is not without just reason that this is proposed to the faithful as a separate object of belief, since there were some who denied his death upon the cross. The apostles, therefore, were justly of opinion that to such an error should be opposed the doctrine of faith contained in this article, the truth of which is placed beyond the possibility of doubt by the united testimony of all the evangelists, who record that Jesus yielded up the ghost, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. Moreover, as Christ was true and perfect man, he, of course, was capable of dying. Now, man dies when the soul is separated from the body, when, therefore, we say that Jesus died, we mean that his soul was disunited from his body. We do not admit, however, that the divinity was separated from his body. On the contrary, we firmly believe and profess that when his soul was dissociated from his body, his divinity continued always united both to his body in the sepulcher and to his soul in limbo. It became the Son of God to die that through death he might destroy him who had the empire of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to servitude. Me again. Notice the catechism there says, We do not admit, however, that the divinity was separated from his body. On the contrary, we firmly believe and profess that when his soul is dissociated from his body, his divinity continued always united both to his body. Let me pause there. So this means in that period between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, remained united to that dead body in the tomb. The divinity remained united to the dead body. And then when we hear that Jesus went to limbo, notice against the teaching of von Balthasar right, right there, Jesus did not go to hell. He went to the limbo of the fathers, the limbo of the fathers on Holy Saturday. That is where Jesus freed everyone who was saved retroactively by the cross, who was in the limbo of the fathers and brought them to heaven. Now, the people who died before Jesus was killed and went to hell, they remain in hell. There is no clearing of hell for those who died from um, the time of Adam to the death of Jesus who are already in hell. In Gehenna, there's no getting out. 
Now, I just said Adam, but keep in mind, Adam was saved. Adam and Eve were saved. They are even in the Western calendar in the Roman martyrology, and it is said that on Holy Saturday, the first people freed from the limbo of the fathers was Adam and Eve. But also keep in mind that they were great penitents, and they did hundreds of years of penance on earth for really unleashing original sin upon us all. But Adam and Eve are saved. They were brought from the limbo of the fathers to paradise by Jesus on Holy Saturday. The Catechism again, Christ died freely. It was the peculiar privilege of Christ the Lord to have died when he himself decreed to die, and to have died not so much by external violence as by internal assent. Not only his death, but also its time and place were ordained by him. For thus Isaiah wrote, He was offered because it was his own will. Isaiah 53, 7. The Lord before his passion declared the same of himself. I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it away from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. John chapter 10. As to the time and place of his death, he said, When Herod insidiously sought his life, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils and do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I am consummated. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, because it cannot be said that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Luke 13. He therefore offered himself not involuntarily or by compulsion, but of his own free will. Going to meet his enemies, he said, I am he, John 18.5, and all the punishments which injustice and cruelty inflicted on him, he endured voluntarily. Me again. Notice the first sentence there says, It was the peculiar privilege of Christ the Lord to have died when he himself decreed to die and to have died not so much by external violence as by internal assent. That is not saying right there that Jesus didn't feel all the pain. It's not even denying the fact that it was tremendous external violence that killed him. All it's saying is that even the extreme violence used against Christ in the Passion fell under the sovereignty of God. And because Jesus is God, it was his permissive will. And so even though the executioners went far beyond what probably even the Apostle John expected to see in cruelty, everything was still permitted by God the Son. That is the eternal word. That is Jesus. The Catechism continues. The thought of Christ's death should excite our love and gratitude. When we meditate on the sufferings and all the torments of the Redeemer, nothing is better calculated to stir our souls than the thought that he endured them thus voluntarily. Were anyone to endure all kinds of suffering for our sake, not because he chose them, but simply because he could not escape them, we should not consider this a very great favor. But were he to endure death freely and for our sake only, having had it in his power to avoid it, this indeed would be a benefit so overwhelming as to deprive even the most grateful heart not only of the power of returning, but even of feeling due thanks. We may hence form an idea of the transcendent and intense love of Jesus Christ toward us, and of his divine and boundless claims to our gratitude. Me again. So you might notice right there why it just explained to us that Christ died freely. Because if this was an accident, if Jesus was just a great prophet who lost control of his life, yeah, we would, we would be thankful that such a prophet, um, such a saint, uh, was able to um, do something so great to, uh, to die for love of the Lord. But because Jesus is both God and man, not just a prophet, not just a saint, but because he's both God and man, laid down his life of his own accord for you and me to live eternally, because he was in complete control of the passion, this is why, one reason why we can have such tremendous thanks that, in other words, Jesus was not obliged to save us. 
I think we sort of see this as sort of our right, especially as American Catholics. At least I do a lot of the times when my life is hard. Um, I can be tempted, I should say, to blasphemous thoughts like somehow I deserved this. No, I didn't deserve Jesus to die at all, at all, at all, at all. And neither did you. And that is what is so tremendous about the fact that he, through time, saw all of your sins and my sins and still chose to die for you and me. And this is exactly why the Catechism says that we should have a most grateful heart. And again, we may hence form an idea of the transcendent and intense love of Jesus Christ toward us and of his divine and boundless claims to our gratitude. Why? Because he chose to freely die for you and me. The Catechism again, Christ was really buried. When we confess that he was buried, we do not make this as it were a distinct part of the article, as if it presented any new difficulty, which is not implied in what we have said of his death, for if we believe that Christ died, we can also easily believe that he was buried. The word buried was added in the creed first that his death might be rendered more certain for the strongest argument of a person's death is the proof that his body was buried, and secondly, to render the miracle of his resurrection more authentic and illustrious. It is not, however, our belief that the body of Christ alone was interred. The above words propose as the principal object of our belief that God was buried. As according to the rule of the Catholic faith, we also say with the strictest truth that God died and that God was born of a virgin. For as the divinity was never separated from his body, which was laid in the sepulcher, we truly confess that God was buried. Circumstances of Christ's burial. As to the manner and place of his burial, what the holy evangelists record on these subjects will be sufficient for the pastor. See Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. There are, however, two things which demand particular attention. The one, that the body of Christ was in no degree corrupted in the sepulchre, according to the prediction of the prophet, Thou wilt not give thy holy one to see corruption. See Psalm 15, Acts 2.31. The other, and it regards the several parts of this article, that burial, passion, and also death apply to Christ Jesus, not as God, but as man. To suffer and die are incidental to human nature only, yet they are also attributed to God, since, as is clear, they are predicted with propriety that the person who is once perfect God and perfect man. Me again, so what this is saying is God died as man, God was buried as man. And just to close, I'd like to read you from the Taylor Marshall's book on St. Paul, a very beautiful line on how Paul followed the crucified Christ so well. Dr. Marshall writes, Many well-meaning Christians are repulsed by the crucifix because it displays the weakness of Christ. However, the cross teaches us that Christ transformed his greatest moment of physical weakness into the most potent act of redemptive suffering. Christ's death is our salvation. The Catholic Church guards as a precious jewel the paradox that states, When I am weak, then I am strong. Or, alternatively, death brings forth life. Because of this, St. Paul perceived his own vocation as a ministry of redemptive suffering. And the truth is, my friends, that's exactly how we should see the cross, as participation in redemptive suffering. But isn't that line beautiful right there? Christ transformed his greatest moment of physical weakness into the most potent act of redemptive suffering, Christ's death is our salvation. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti descendet super vos et maniet semper. Amen. <laughs>